So, so far we've looked at the overarching principle in this discussion on spiritual gifts, and that is that Jesus is Lord. And last week, as Paul wanted to emphasize the significance of the variety of gifts that have come from a united Godhead, he identifies that even in this great diversity of gifts, there is unity within the Spirit. There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. Variety of ministries, but the same Lord. There are a variety of effects, but the same God. And so this diversity of gifts is important for two reasons. One, it takes away this feeling of spiritual superiority that some of the Corinthians had. And it also helps the community of believers come together feeling like they are equal at the foot of the cross. So the diversity of gifts is important because the Corinthians have also focused singularly on the gift of tongues or on inspired utterances. And so this singular focus has created a problem within their worship services and it's taking place in their various house churches. And this problem is deepening the divide that exists between them as they gather together for worship. So I don't know if you've ever been in a worship service where it was chaotic and where there were people who were speaking out and there were people who were disruptive. I have not been a part of that. I can only imagine how difficult it would be to experience the presence of God, to be communing with Him in a chaotic environment, likely which was taking place here at the church in Corinth. So Paul's emphasis on unity and diversity is important because it not only speaks of the unity that exists within the giver of the gifts, God Himself, and the gifts that He has sovereignly chosen to give, but also unity that is to exist amongst the believers. We looked at this and referenced last week that God creates unity in the Spirit for the church, and we are to preserve what God has created for us to enjoy. So the church is being torn apart by these divisions and the misunderstanding and misapplication of these spiritual gifts, and it's creating chaos in worship, and it's making the Corinthian worship experience even worse than it was before. So I'm going to repeat something I said last week. I told you that I would repeat, so here it is. As we talk about spiritual gifts, our primary interest is in the gifts themselves, especially as we see them listed here. But Paul's objective isn't to teach them about spiritual gifts. It is about correcting their improper understanding and usage of these gifts. So this is not a systematic discussion of spiritual gifts. It is not carefully worked out, nor does Paul provide an exhaustive list. It's merely representative of the diversity of the Spirit's manifestations among the people who make up the church. His primary concern here is to offer a considerable list so they will stop being singular in their own emphasis on tongues or on inspired utterances. So he's dealing dealing very specifically with a problem that exists within the church at Corinth. So verses verses 4 through 6 have set the theological context for all that Paul is going to say in regards to spiritual gifts. And so in our passage today, Paul is now going to list some of these spiritual gifts. As a matter of note, a little bit later in this same chapter, there is the mention of offices and gifts and ministries in verses 28 to 30. There's some minor variation with those as the gifts are applied or are understood. So for context and connection, I want to read from verse 1 all the way through the end of, all the way through chapter, excuse me, verse 11, even though we're only going to focus on verses 8 through 11. So here is where we've been so far in our discussion about spiritual gifts. Verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of, varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. 
and to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. So Roman numeral 3 in our, in our outline is the gifts. Now, sometimes when you get to passages like this, this is what everybody's waiting for. This is the moment. And we're finally getting to the gifts. So before we get into the listing of gifts, there are a few things that I think will be beneficial in our study. The first thing is this. Paul's point here is not to teach them about spiritual gifts in particular, but to deal with the singular focus of tongues. Because that is true, Paul does not take a lot of time to try to distinguish or make application of what these individual gifts are. He just simply names them as a reminder that there is more than just the one that they are focusing on. So as such, he's not trying to carefully categorize them. He's not trying to order them in any form of hierarchy. He's not doing anything. He's simply emphasizing the variety of the gifts that God has given. Now, the other part of this, which is helpful, (laughs) which is not helpful from my perspective, is that there's a lot of disagreement about the gifts. Within the evangelical church today, within the same denomination, or within the same bodies of doctrinal agreement, there's going to be differences of opinion as to what these gifts are, what they mean, how they're executed through the life of the church. And so there there really isn't a singular understanding. Now, the hard part of that is it makes it very difficult to present it. The good part of that is that this is not one of these essential elements of our faith. What we believe about the individual gifts and their execution does not determine our salvation. It's important because of how it empowers the church to be effective in ministry, but our understanding of gifts should never ever be a cause of division or frustration or putting people down or thinking less of them because there is a difference of opinion. So, all of that being said, generally speaking, there are Two classifications of these spiritual gifts, and not everybody agrees that there are two classifications. The first one is permanent gifts. These gifts are given to the church for the purpose of building up or edifying the church. That is why God has given gifts to believers so that through the plurality of the body... There is an equal contribution to the well-being of this group of people who call themselves a church. So, the purpose of these permanent gifts is to build up the church individually and corporately, those who assemble together for worship. Since they are permanent, they will be given throughout the entirety of the church age and are to be used by His people at all times in the life of the church. Permanent gifts. The second classification, which isn't always agreed to, is temporary gifts. This is generally the point of disagreement over the temporary nature or the temporary understanding or application of these gifts. So these gifts are signs to confirm the Word of God and His messengers. The temporary sign gifts were limited to the apostolic age and therefore ceased after that time. Now, what's very difficult for us to understand or recognize is that to a much greater degree in the Old Testament period and in the New Testament period, there was an incredibly pluralistic religious experience and understanding. It still exists, not so much in our world, in our culture, but it does exist in other cultures and within other religious understandings. For example, you might share the gospel with a Hindu, and they say, well, great, I'll accept Jesus and I'll put the cross right next to all of my other idols. It's just an add-on. So in a very pluralistic religious understanding, it was important that the Word of God be authenticated 
for the truth that it was and for the individuals who were given the responsibility to reveal this truth. And so to that end, it is widely held that these gifts were temporary in nature for the purpose of authenticating the apostolic message as the authoritative Word of God until the time when the Scriptures were completed and then became self-authenticating of themselves. So, temporary gifts to authenticate the Word and to authenticate the messenger were accompanied by these temporary sign gifts. Those are the two general classifications, not widespread agreement or universal agreement rather, that there are even two. But then my understanding and the multitude of those that I've read, this seems to be the general consensus. So within these two classifications, there are by human terms three categories. Paul does not intend to make categories, but we try to categorize them for our own understanding. There's a reference in Peter that I did not put up and will not recite, and I don't remember where it is. I think it might be 114 or 214, uh, 2 Peter 114, I can't remember. But it talks about the difference between two primary gifts and then the third category that we're going to add here today. So, Paul does not list them all, and we will not collect all of the gifts that are mentioned within the writings of Scripture. We're not going to insert them into the study, because much to my surprise, even though I shouldn't be surprised, what on face value seems like a pretty straightforward message really isn't that straightforward at all, and it was far more involved than I ever intended or thought it would be. So for our purpose, we will group them into three categories, only the ones that are listed here in our passage. And in doing this, we will look at a slightly non-sequential examination of these three verses, which means we're going to hop around a little bit. So when you look at the two classifications, permanent and temporary, there are three categories where gifts could be plugged into, even though that is not necessarily the best way to do it. Simply, surely not what Paul is intending to do. Categories of gifts. The first one is speaking gifts. Obviously, the speaking gifts involve communication. It's not enough to have the gift, but the gift is designed to be shared with others through the execution of a particular ministry. Now, Paul gives a couple of examples here, and we'll make some application as we look at them. Letter A, the first one that Paul mentions here, is the gift of wisdom. Verse 8a, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. So, the clue that this is a speaking gift, which may not be as clear to us as it should be, because we think of wisdom as sometimes an internal thing, the clue to that is the word in the Greek, logos, is what Paul uses here. So the word is then something that is to be spoken as opposed to something that is just to be owned or possessed. Almost everyone agrees that this is in fact a speaking gift. In the Greek New Testament, the word for wisdom is the word Sophia, and it refers to the ability to understand God's will and obediently apply it. It is possible that wisdom was somewhat revelatory in the first century as God's word was being revealed through the apostles. Wisdom is applying the truths discovered in God's word and making skillful application and practical application to individual life's situations. Now, I'll reverse this explanation in just a moment. So, communicating wisdom, then, is the function of a pastor or a teacher who draws not only from his own study of Scripture, but also from the many insights and interpretations of commentators and other Bible scholars. So it is the ability to accumulate proper application of God's Word to life situations, whether it be problems or decisions or other things that come into our life. So that is, in a sense, what wisdom is. And again, it's not something that is just to be possessed singularly, but it is to be spoken and expressed corporately. For what purpose? 
for the edification and the building up of the community. If you, for example, were considered by all of your peers to be an incredibly wise person as it relates to spiritual truth, and you never ever communicated that wisdom with anybody else, what good would your wisdom do? It might help you, but it's not going to help anybody else. And so that's a part of what Paul's emphasis is here, is that the usage of the variety of gifts is to build up and edify the church as the body of Christ. So this gift of wisdom is a feature in the gift of the pastor or the teacher who must know, understand, and be able to apply God's word in order to lead people into an appropriate walk with the Lord. That doesn't mean they're infallible, doesn't mean they're perfect, doesn't mean that they know everything. It just means that they have this gift and they use it publicly in order to help other people in their walk with God. Now, accompanying wisdom... Letter B is knowledge. We see this in the second part of verse 8. And to another, the word of knowledge according to the same spirit. So some would argue that knowledge should precede wisdom in the list. But again, Paul's purpose is not to carefully categorize them or to put them in a logical sequence. He's simply identifying them. Again, you'll note the usage of the Greek word logos here, indicating that this also is a speaking gift. It's also possible that knowledge was revelatory in the first century as God was revealing His Word through the apostles. Now, as we would understand it, knowledge is the basis for wisdom, right? If you know what is true, then you apply that truth to the decisions that you make in your life, and that renders a person wise. The opposite of that is to know the truth and to do differently, and the Bible calls you a fool. So wisdom and knowledge go hand in hand. Paul's not trying to organize these in a logical or a sequential way. But knowledge is a broad term which basically refers to perceiving and understanding the truths of God's Word. Now think about this. In first century, in the apostolic age, they had the completed canon of the Old Testament. And they would read that. And for example, in the book of Acts, Peter would get up to speak and to address the group. And he spoke things that he had no idea he knew because God had given him the gift of knowledge to communicate God's Word as a revelation of that which was not previously known. So in that sense, wisdom and knowledge can be considered revelatory as the canon of Scripture was being written, but once the canon has been completed, the revelatory component of wisdom or of knowledge would cease to exist. In that sense, wisdom and knowledge is the, is the understanding and application of that which has already been revealed. So let me say it to you this way. If you hear someone speaking, or if you read someone who has written, and they say to you, God revealed to me, red flags need to jump up in your head. You need to say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, what does he mean by that? What do they mean that God has revealed to me? Because the canon of Scripture is complete. All that has been revealed, all that will be revealed has been revealed. But what God does give to us is an increased capacity to know and to apply. This is one of the reasons why you can read through a passage of Scripture and you can go, oh my goodness, I've never seen that before. It's not new revelation, it's new understanding. So anybody who ever says, God revealed to me, you need to be very, very cautious with what you do with what they say. There are many authors, many pastors who have claimed a special revelation from God that is totally inconsistent with Scripture. There are many, many pastors who will tell of some revelatory vision or dream or experience of why God found it important to bring them into heaven to communicate something to them 
That was already written in Scripture. Well, what's the point of that? I don't understand the point of that. There's no point of that. It's something someone has made up. We always need to be very careful when someone says, God revealed to me. Now, we can say, and we can say accurately, God gave me an understanding of how I can apply this to my life or how I can apply this truth in a public environment. That's a part of wisdom and knowledge. That's a part of our growing and of our edification in our faith in the Lord. So again, it's a broad term, basically refers to perceiving and understanding the truths of God's Word. It is especially helpful in the gift of communicating insight into the mysteries of His revelation, those truths that could not be known apart from God's revelation. That's exactly what the apostles did. Do you think the Jews had any idea that it was God's plan that the Gentiles would be woven into the promises He made? All the way back to Abraham, they didn't know that, but God revealed that through the teaching of the apostles. So wisdom, excuse me, knowledge includes the capability of grasping the meaning of God's revelation, which is a mystery to the natural mind. Authors, commentators, biblical scholars, and others are especially gifted this way and are usually, not always, usually trained in biblical languages, history, archaeology, theology, and they know the culture inside and out. It is in that understanding that they're able to get new insight into what God has already revealed through His Word. So the gift of knowledge accompanied with wisdom is central to the preaching and teaching ministry of the church, as well as in the leading of the church in a direction that follows the plan that God has laid out for us corporately. So the human writers of Scripture had the gift of knowledge in a unique way, most of whom were not formally trained. That was why the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the onlookers said, these are not or excuse me, are these not all uneducated men? And we hear them speaking these things and speaking in these languages. How can that be? Well, God had supernaturally empowered them with the gift of knowledge. But since the canon of Scripture has been closed, that gift has not that gift does not involve the receiving of new truth, but only the understanding of truth that has previously been revealed. Hope that's clear. Wisdom and knowledge can be revelatory. And the giving of Scripture, but since the canon has been closed, it cannot be revelatory because God's Word is complete. So now to keep it in the same category of the speaking gifts, we're going to jump down into the second part of verse 10. And the third speaking gift that Paul, speaking gift that Paul mentions here is the gift of prophecy, 10b and to another prophecy. So the most basic meaning of the word prophecy is to speak forth or to proclaim. So obviously it is a speaking gift. Now, this is this is interesting to me, and this is something that I knew would have to be pulled out, but not necessarily to the degree that became more obvious. So there's a difference of opinion as to whether prophecy is a permanent gift or a temporary gift, and that is going to depend upon how you define it. We sometimes think of the word prophecy to mean predicting or to tell us something happening before it happens. Now, there are many, 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 many so-called prophets within, I don't want to say evangelical, hard to get that word out, evangelicalism. (laughs) But the prophecy doesn't come true, therefore they are a false prophet. So there is a sense in which Prophecy means to predict or to tell something that has not yet happened. And there are many, many examples of this within the Scripture. If we just think about Messianic prophecy, there are many examples of that, aren't there? We were told that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, that He would be born in Bethlehem, that He would heal the blind and the deaf, that He would be beaten and killed with sinners, that He would be raised from the dead. And there are many, many others that validate the person of Jesus as the promised Messiah. So in this sense, prophecy carries a predictive nature to it and is revelatory, revealing that which was not previously known. Now, the New Testament revealed many things about the Messiah, 
about God's plans and purposes that were not previously known. Now, let me pause real quick here. What gets to be difficult for us is our tendency to categorize these gifts as distinctly different from one another, even though in all honesty they probably merge and blur together in a less distinct way. So, there is many parts of the New Testament that are revelatory in nature. But there's another aspect to the word prophecy, and its meaning is more central to it than the predictive element. So a prophet is simply one who speaks forth God's Word. That is the basic definition of a prophet. Someone who speaks forth God's Word. Now, the speaking forth of God's Word may include some forthtelling, some predictive element to it, but it is very simply proclaiming the Word of God. So the gift of prophecy is the Spirit-given and Spirit-empowered ability to proclaim the Word of God effectively. Now, since the canon of Scripture has been completed, prophecy no longer is new revelation, but has only proclaimed what has already been revealed in Scripture. So in each of these three speaking gifts that Paul lists here, there is the possibility of a revelatory component to that. But since the canon is closed, and there is no new revelation coming from God, the revelatory component of wisdom and knowledge and prophecy has ceased to exist. In this sense... The gift of prophecy is permanent. And this is what Paul will describe for us as we look in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3. Paul says, But the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. There is zero indication that there is any predictive element to that. There's not this forth telling, but there's simply this explanation, this exhortation of what God has already revealed. So clearly this is not a revelatory function, but a permanent instructive one. And the companion passage in Romans chapter 12, where Paul also picks up the discussion about spiritual gifts, he says this in Romans 12, 6. I didn't put that up there, I'm sorry. Listen carefully. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each one of us is to exercise them accordingly if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. So prophecy is not telling what was not previously known. It's telling what has already been revealed. So sometimes a prophet will proclaim God's word in an unpopular setting or in a confrontational setting where God's truth is being ignored and the one with this gift speaks forth Anyway, now if you go back, for example, to the major prophets in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel thought Isaiah and Jeremiah were absolutely nuts. Much of what they said had a predictive element to it about the pending discipline that was going to come. And so it was prophetic in that respect, foretelling, but they simply shared what God had called them to share in an unpopular and in an unwilling environment. In this respect, an individual who has the gift of prophecy is going to boldly and willingly speak out in the culture the truth of God's Word even when it isn't going to be received, even if it might bring about some kind of persecution. That's the gift of prophecy. Prophecy is a component of preaching and teaching. It is necessary for the edification of the church. And those who have some prophetic element to their teaching, speaking forth what God says, are not going to hold back the truth as unpopular as it might be, or as confrontational as it might be, within the Christian culture. Those who want to get along and go along with the lost mentality 
or with a carnal Christian are going to say the things that need to be said in order to be approved by the audience instead of simply speaking what God's Word says whether you agree with it or not. Someone who has the gift of prophecy is going to speak forth the truth of God's Word whether the people understand it or agree with it or want to hear it. So the other speaking gifts that are not mentioned here within this passage are teaching and exhortation. Secondly, the second category are the serving gifts. I didn't give you prophecy. You need to fill in the blank. I'll give you a second there. So number two are going to be the serving gifts. And the first one that Paul mentions here sequentially is going to be in verse 9. What happened? I'm so sorry. So the serving gifts... um, Oh, it was there. Shame on me. Serving gifts. Letter A is faith. This is found in verse 9, the very first part, to another faith by the same Spirit. So this is not a reference to saving faith. It's not the capacity to understand the message of salvation and respond, but it's an intensive ability to trust God in difficult and in very demanding ways. So... The ability to trust God in the face of overwhelming obstacles against human impossibility is not something that we generally possess in our lives. Think about it. How quickly, how easily can we be overcome with fear or worry or uncertainty? How quickly... Can we be discouraged by the circumstances that are going on in our life? How quickly can we doubt that God is with me, that God is working on my behalf, even though I really can't see it? We talked about this uh, two weeks ago. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Isn't that right? So we all don't possess this spiritual gift of faith. Now, while our faith can grow, and it does grow, it is different than those who have the Spirit-empowered gift of faith. The first example that comes to my mind is Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb came back from their investigation into the promised land and they said, oh my goodness, it is a great land that God has given to us. We just need to go. And the tenants said, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's some pretty big people out there and we're like grasshoppers in their sight and surely they're going to squash us like bugs. Joshua and Caleb had the gift of faith. Peter had the gift of faith. For a very short time, he jumped out of the boat and walked on water before he sunk. And later on in his life, we see this gift of faith be expressed in his allegiance to God and his willingness to follow God. Paul was also gifted with this gift of faith, traveling all over the known world to share the gospel, believing that God would provide and protect. And I'll tell you this, we don't have any appreciation for how risky travel was in the first century to do what Paul did for some 20 years on four different missionary journeys. He literally took his life in his hands every time he took a step to follow God. It took incredible faith to do that. So people with the gift of faith are often used by God as a catalyst for revival, for establishing missionary work like Paul, or traveling evangelists all over to spread the gospel without having any specific idea of how God was going to work this out. I just believe God has called me to do this, and I'm going to do it, and God's going to make a way. Most of us do not have that kind of faith. We say, oh, so this is what we're going to do. So how are we going to do that? And what's going to happen if this happens? And what's going to happen if that happens? And what's going to happen if these people do that? And we go all through the list and we find ourselves like Moses who says, yeah, but who is Pharaoh to listen to me? And what if he says this? What do I do? And what if he does that? What do I do? And God simply said, you're just to speak and to obey and to follow. Moses grew in his faith, but he did not possess the gift of faith the way Joshua and Caleb did, or like the apostles did, as recorded for us in the pages of the book of Acts. So we have these serving gifts. The first one, 
The first one is faith. I'm so sorry. I checked this. I don't know what happened. So we have these serving gifts. The first one is the gift of faith. Letter B, we have discernment. This is found in verse 10, the third part of that, where Paul says, and to another, the distinguishing of spirits. Now this one sounds a lot more challenging than it really ought to be, and it's not a very um, frequently possessed gift in our culture and our church today. So this gift provides protection to the church's purity of doctrine and practice, the ability to scrutinize what is true, in what is false. Now we can often, not always, we can often identify false teaching because because of how it clearly contradicts Scripture, assuming we know the Word. But the distinguishing of spirits is able to go beyond that and to detect the motives and the true desires of those that seek to deceive. This is where it gets to feel a little mystical to us and it feels a little bit indefinable to us, and it almost sounds like it's kind of out of bounds to us. But here's what helps in our in our reminding of this, is our enemy is known as the great deceiver. Jesus called him the father of lies. He walks through our world like a roaring lion seeking to devour all that he can. He appears like a sheep, but he is in fact in wolves. He appears like a sheep, but he's actually a wolf in sheep's clothing. So because he is the enemy and the great great deceiver, there is the necessity for us to be able to discern beyond the clear teaching of Scripture into the motives that exist behind some of the things that make its way into the church. So with this ability to to distinguish the spirits, things that seem biblical on the surface can be exposed as being deceptive and filled with error by those who possess this gift of discernment. Now this was especially important in the New Testament era, since the canon of Scripture was not complete, but still today, discernment is necessary to distinguish between the genuine and the fraudulent. This is a very difficult gift to recognize. It can be overdone to the extent that we call into question anybody that we don't know well. But it does go beyond the clarity of what God's Word says into the motives or into the desires that may not be so readily apparent when someone proposes something. And it may be that somebody identifies that on the beginning part and it's not until this idea or this philosophy gets more parsed out that it becomes clearly inconsistent with the clear teaching of God's Word. So the spirit of discernment might recognize that on the front end where the inconsistency with God's revealed Word becomes more apparent as that movement takes hold within the church. Now there are many other serving gifts that are not mentioned here within Paul's explanation to the church at Corinth. It's leadership, it's the gift of helps, it's the gift of giving, and it's also the gift of mercy. Thirdly, we come now to the sign gifts. The sign gifts are thought by those who believe in the temporary classification to be the temporary gifts given for the purpose of authenticating God's Word and His messengers. Now, these temporary gifts, these sign gifts, were all completely active in the first century. So they were active during the writing of the New Testament. They were active in the lives of the apostles. And they were undoubtedly witnessed by the Corinthians or they were heard of taking place by the Corinthians. So while different from the ecstatic mystery religion experiences that were so popular in Corinth, as we talked about in weeks past, these gifts probably felt very similar to them and in their minds confirmed a superior spiritual experience to those that did not have these sign gifts. Now, what I find to be interesting is that all the sign gifts are mentioned here in the book of Corinthians, 
possibly because these were the gifts that were most important to the church at Corinth. So the listing that we have here in Corinthians letter A is healings. Verse 9b, the middle part of verse 9, and to another gifts of healing by the one spirit. So the gifts of healing are the first temporary sign gifts that Paul mentions in the passage. The word healing is plural in the Greek, emphasizing the many kinds of afflictions and ailments that needed to be healed. So these gifts were for Christ, for the apostles, as mentioned by Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, as Jesus sent out the 70, as referenced in Luke chapter 10, and some associates of the apostles, such as Philip mentioned in Acts chapter 8. So here's what I want to be very, very clear over is this. God may still heal directly and miraculously today in response to the faithful prayers of His children or just by virtue of His own sovereign desire. But no Christian today has the gift of healings in the same way that we see the gift executed within the writings of the New Testament. This is apparent because no one today can heal as Jesus and the apostles did, who with a word or a touch instantaneously and totally healed all who came to them. Now, there are many, many in our world who profess to have the gift of healing. They claim to be able to heal you from whatever it is that bothers you. But many of these have been exposed to frauds who have been guilty of planting people in the audience and having spotters with earpieces in their ears who identify the individual and who prompt the individual to come. And you might see them wave their coat and they fall on the floor, or they blow on them and they fall on the floor, or they clap their hands and they and they fall on the floor, or they just simply pray over them some loud ecstatic utterance and they fall on the floor. So I will tell you that the individuals who profess to have that ability are more concerned with the end of the service where brother, sister, I need you to give to me so I can continue this this uh, message of the gospel and God's healing. So if you'll sow a seed, plant a seed, give a gift, I can spread this gift all over the world. That's what it's really all about. Their alleged gift of healing that attests to God's supernatural hand upon them is how they authenticate who they are. And you authenticate your belief in that by supporting them financially. Here's what's very interesting. The Great Commission does not contain a single call to heal people physically. It's a call to heal people spiritually. It isn't that God is no longer concerned about physical well-being, but healing is no longer necessary to authenticate the gospel messengers. Does that mean that God does not heal? Absolutely not. God still heals. Whether it's through medicine, whether it's through His hand, whether it's through time, whether it's through our physical passing into the eternity, I don't know. But God heals. God heals. He hasn't closed up the healing business. It just doesn't get executed in the lives of the church as it did through the life of Jesus and those who had the gift during the apostolic age. Now, to coincide with this, letter B, is miracles. This is mentioned in verse 10a. And to another, the effecting of miracles. So like healings, this sign gift authenticated the messengers of the Gospels. Now, this is where it's really, really interesting and important, is that commentators make a distinction about the word miracles. So here, let me explain this. This is something I wasn't expecting, but I think it makes a lot of sense. So here's what a miracle is. In the strictest sense, a miracle is a supernatural intrusion into the natural world and its natural laws explainable only by divine intervention. Let me repeat that. A miracle is a supernatural intrusion into the natural world and its natural laws explainable only by divine intervention. There are many, many examples of this within the Scriptures. For example, just within the life of Jesus, Jesus made wine from water. 
Jesus multiplied huge amounts of food simply by breaking it and distributing it. Jesus walked on the water with Peter. Jesus calmed the raging storm on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus mysteriously vanished from a hostile crowd who was trying to kill Him. Jesus also visibly ascended on a cloud into the heavens. All of these are a supernatural intrusion into our natural world and our natural laws, and they are only explainable by divine intervention. So here's the distinction. God often leads us and helps us or warns us by working through other Christians, through ordinary circumstances, or through natural laws. These are supernatural workings of providence by God, but they are not miracles of nature. Now that's not a way to put, that's not a wet blanket on God's working in your life, But there's just simply a distinction between God working in a way that we can't explain or understand and what is technically a miracle. I hear many, many people throw the word miracle around like they throw around the word love. I mean, I love pizza. Oh, I love my bike. Oh, I love that. I love, you know, we love, we throw that out haphazardly. So we throw out the word miracle haphazardly when it really doesn't mean that there's been a divine intrusion that defies our natural laws. But they are providence worked out by God to prove to us that He is there, that He does care, that He is at work. So one of the indications of this distinction is the word here in the Greek. The Greek word for miracle is the word Dunamis, which is the word power. Now, why do the English translators choose the word miracle? I don't know. I wouldn't know on the board when they had that conversation. But the word is dunamis, and literally in the Greek it says, working of powers. Now, why the apostles didn't perform miracles of nature like Jesus did, they did perform works of power. We see this recorded in Acts 14.3. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of His grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. Synonymous words for power being worked out through the hands of the apostles. So these workings of power accompanied the revelation of God's word to authenticate both the message and the messengers. Similarly, we would see in 2 Corinthians, if we go there, in 12.12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and dunamis, miracles. So Paul apparently had done some of these signs and wonders when he ministered to them for the 18 months that he was ministering to them as recorded, I think, in Acts chapter 8. So the word miracle again here is the Greek word for power. Casting out demons would be a working of power, as would healing people from their physical ailments. Now I guess if you were a one-armed man and the apostles healed you and grew out an arm, I imagine that would be a miracle of nature, right? But there's no recording, there's no record of, of the apostles doing anything like that in the New Testament. So while there are acts of God's providence all around us, the gift of miracles or powers was reserved for the early church. There are none who can perform these same wonders today. Now, I didn't go through in great detail to list this, but if you look at the life of Paul, if you read through the book of Acts, Paul himself was ill, but never asked anybody to heal him. Paul had several associates, Epaphroditus and Timothy, and there's another one whose name escapes me, and never did Paul heal them, but he prayed for them. So healing and these works of miracles were not central to the message of the gospel, but they were central to authenticate the message and the messenger. So, lastly, letter C, tongues. 
And letter D, interpretation, we see this in verse 10. And to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. And some of you are sitting there saying, finally, we get to the, uh, we get to the one I really want to get in. Well, these are the most controversial of the sign gifts. And this is dealt with extensively in chapter 14. And I'm already 49 minutes into this message, and so we're not going to talk about the gifts of tongues or interpretation. We'll deal with them when we get to chapter 14 because Paul's still building the foundation. So if your bubble has been burst, I'm sorry. Hang on and we'll get there eventually. So all of these gifts, the variety, the effects, all of this stuff, all of these are gifts sovereignly, didn't make it on there, sovereignly controlled by God. This is the capstone of what we read here. The summarization of verses 4 through 10 is what we read here in verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. So where they are singularly focused on tongues, Paul says, now wait a minute, there's way more than tongues. It's not the most important thing. In fact, when we read in 13 and 14, it's really not even that, that important of a thing, but they made it the most important thing. So just as Paul did when illustrating the varieties of gifts, the variety of ministries, the effects of these spiritual gifts in verses 4 through 6, Paul continues to stress that each gift, though different in many ways from the others, is supernaturally and sovereignly given by one and the same Spirit. In fact, this is the fifth time just in these three, these four verses that there's a reference to the Holy Spirit as the giver of these gifts. Those with gifts are not the spiritually elite, but they comprise the entirety of the church, the body of Christ. All of us are gifted and all of us are called by the Lord to minister the gifts that He has supplied for the building up or the edification of the church to the maturity of our faith until we either leave this world, until we're no longer physically able, or until God pulls the plug and ends this thing we know as life on earth. So the good news is this. God has given you a spiritual gift to be used in building up His church. It could be a speaking gift. It could be a serving gift, probably not a sign gift, since I believe that those were done away with with the closing of the canon of Scripture. Now, if you believe you have a sign gift, we're not enemies. We don't need to fight it out. We need to sit down and go through every verse of Scripture where the sign gifts are referenced and spend hours and hours parsing those out. If you believe you have a sign gift, God bless you. We'll learn more about those sign gifts as we go through these three chapters here in the book of 1 Corinthians. God has given you a gift, and as we will look at, God expects us to use these gifts for His service. It should be a great thing for us to know that as a wretched sinner saved by grace, God has given me some ability to bring glory to His name as I serve Him through my church. It's a way for us to express our thankfulness to Him, our gratitude towards Him, our humility before Him, our interdependency upon one another in our church, as we'll look at in the days ahead. You've been gifted by God. He expects you to use that. And as a part of our capstone to this part of it, we're going to sing praises to God who gives us the ability to serve Him. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful.